Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue and conclude our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, this week with our first message entitled, The Tomb of Jesus. So turning your Bibles to Matthew 27, 62 to 66, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It is the case that when the enemies of God rage against him, they eventually fall into his hands. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul warns the Christian church against participation in the you know, pagan temples in the city of Corinth. And as he builds his argument, he asks two questions. The first, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And then the second, are we stronger than he? I want us to consider the second question. I know the question is really a rhetorical question. No one should think that we're stronger than God. He's the creator. We're the creation. He's the sustainer of all things. We are moment by moment sustained by him. He causes all things to exist, and we, according to his pleasure, are caused to exist. How then should we think we're stronger than he? I mean, such thinking is foolish beyond belief. And so, surprise, surprise, God's ways always win out. Indeed, God's ways win out exactly in accordance with his timetable. We control nothing. He controls everything. Only a fool fights with God. And for that reason, I find the account right at the end of Matthew chapter 27 to be fascinating. Jesus has been crucified, but rather than things going the way the chief priests and elders of Israel had imagined, the events turn out differently, and perhaps they're now frightened. After all, what should they have expected? For the last three years, the Jesus phenomenon has been impacting Israel. He started out his ministry under the watching eye of all Jerusalem. See, John the Baptist had been baptizing in the Jordan River in the wilderness of Judea, within walking distance from Jerusalem. There's a great revival going on. The greater part of Jerusalem was emptying out to hear him preach. Many were baptized, confessing their sins, and many Pharisees and Sadducees went to hear him preach as well. And when Jesus was baptized by John, heaven opened and a voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. No one of the thousands who were baptized had that happened to them. It only happened to Jesus. And then Jesus began to preach. And in short order, the crowds going out to hear Jesus were much larger than the crowds that were going out to hear John. And then Jesus settled into the Galilee and no one could deny the amazing reports that were coming out of there. The blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, the lame were walking, the demons were being cast out of people, and in a few cases, even the dead had been raised. Indeed, before Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he had been in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And a man, Simon, was also there. They called him Simon the leper, not because he had leprosy, but because he had once had leprosy until Jesus had cleansed him. And so there in Bethany on the Sabbath before Palm Sunday, a large crowd had gathered not just to see Jesus, but also to see the man he had raised from the dead. People wanted the details. They had just wanted to see for themselves, and no doubt they wanted to hear it from Lazarus himself. The man had been in the tomb not for half an hour, but for four days. And in that climate, the heat and the lack of embalming, the odor of decay of a corpse was rich in the tomb. And when Jesus had demanded that the stone sealing the tomb be removed, 
everyone there had smelled the horrible odor of human decay. And that's when Jesus raised him from the dead. You know, there can be no doubt why the crowd was so enthusiastic about Jesus. Anyone with even a small bit of objectivity would have concluded what Nicodemus had concluded so many years earlier. You might remember he was a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Jewish ruling council, also called the Sanhedrin. And he came to Jesus and said that which required almost no discernment at all to say. John chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, he said, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, that was self-evident, unless, of course, you're given to deny it. Why would you deny it? Well, because Jesus would threaten your power base. And so as John recorded in John chapter 11, before Jesus had even ridden into Jerusalem on that fateful Sunday, the chief priests had met with their enemies, the Pharisees, and together they had called a meeting of the ruling council. This is what the leadership said. If we let Jesus carry on in this way, everyone will believe in him. Now, that was quite an admission. Then they said, the next thing that will happen is that the Romans will come and they will send in an overwhelming force and they'll crush this messianic fervor. So, let's kill Jesus. And while we're at it, let's kill Lazarus as well. Well, no one stopped them and said, but wait, can anyone but God raise the dead? You see, that was the question they should have asked. I mean, they might have remembered their Bible, 2 Kings 5. It tells us that the king of Syria had heard that there was a prophet in Israel, a man by the name of Elijah, who did miracles. And so he sends his commander, Naaman, with a great deal of money to go to Israel and be healed of leprosy. Naaman's got a letter from his own king, as well as money to give to the king of Israel. All they want is for Naaman to be healed. And then the king of Israel, Jehoram, tears his clothes. He assumes that the king of Syria is just looking for provocation to begin a war. 2 Kings 5, 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. See, whatever was wrong about the king of Israel, Jehoram by name, Jehoram had one thing right. Only God can kill and make alive. Now, human beings can kill, but they can't make alive. Well, the Jewish ruling council in Israel knew that as well, but they didn't care. It was about the power structures in Israel, and so they wanted Jesus dead. But and this has been my point. It's a fool who fights with God. God's ways win out. Are we stronger than he? Shouldn't the chief priests have asked themselves that question? And when Jesus died, all manner of things turned out differently than the elders of Israel had expected. I mean, at first, of course, everything went according to plan. They crucified Jesus. They won over the crowd. But then came the sixth hour. It was noon. And suddenly the sky went dark. And it continued to be dark until Jesus cried out and died. And then there was a violent earthquake in the city. And then word came to them from the temple. The veil which shielded the Holy of Holies had been torn in two from top to bottom. Is this the hand of God? Shall they now fight with God? And it's right here that we turn to our study of Matthew's gospel. You know, Joseph of Arimathea, a man from the Sanhedrin, after Jesus had died, had stepped forward and declared himself. He was going to identify with Jesus. He, he asked for the body of Jesus to be given to him, and Pilate gives him permission. Joseph buries Jesus in a newly dug cave. 
He's offering the dead body of Jesus the very best. All of these things happen before the sun set on Friday. Clearly, if the Pharisees had thought this matter through, this was the time to think matters over. They were fighting God, but instead they doubled down. So let's read Matthew 27, 62 to 64. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Now first, I know this seems like a bit of a detour, but let's ask and answer the question of whether Jesus was really dead for three days. And I say that because, as we see from our text in Matthew, as well as from the other three gospel writers, that Jesus was crucified and died on Friday. He would have died at about three in the afternoon. Then he would have been buried before the sun set. Matthew says that the next day was the day of preparation. See, the preparation was the day in which people prepared for the Sabbath day. And so Sabbath was a day of rest and worship, kind of like Christians used to do. They would make preparations for Sunday so that there would be no work done on the Sunday, no shopping. Everything was prepared. Sunday was a day of rest. In the same fashion, the Jews prepared for Sabbath. The next day then is Sabbath. And in the morning of the next day, Sunday, he rises from the dead. So in reality, Jesus was dead for less than two full days rather than three days. So what gives? Well, the answer to this conundrum, why Jesus is said to have been dead for three days, has to do with the Jewish way of thinking. You know, any part of the day was considered to be a whole day. Jesus died on Friday, and so according to Jewish calculation, it's a full day. Then came Saturday, another full day, and he rose early Sunday morning. That's also, in their way of thinking, a full day. That's how we get three days, although technically, Jesus was dead for less than two days. Well, I just thought I needed to say that to clear matters up. But let's get back to this matter of fighting God. On that Sabbath, the Jewish leaders decided they would double down and they would fight God. The Easter season is upon us. It's a time we celebrate and honor the victory of our Savior. Sin was defeated and forgiveness won. Because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we can now look beyond this world to the eternal, heavenly relationship that awaits with the Creator. To help you commemorate and meditate on this precious act of love, Back to the Bible Canada is offering two Easter-themed programs this season. Visit our YouTube channel and check out Dr. John's nine-message series, Journey to the Cross. And be sure to also tune in to his four-week audio series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, based on the book of Matthew. This series, along with many others from years past, can also be found at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, perhaps consider giving a gift to sustain the creation of future Bible teaching resources from Back to the Bible Canada. It was on the Sabbath that the Jewish elders gathered before Pilate. It's a showcase of hypocrisy. The Pharisees always insisted on strict Sabbath observance. How they criticized Jesus on this matter. 
You know, on one occasion, Jesus and his disciples had stripped heads of grain and they'd eaten them. Well, that's work, the Pharisees roared. You're sinners because you're doing work on the Sabbath. Those men, the Pharisees, had figured out how many steps you could take from your home on a Sabbath. Any more than that, you're on a journey and that's illegal on the Sabbath. They had so many Sabbath rules and yet, in spite of the heavy burden of Sabbath laws, now these men were going to meet with Pilate on the Sabbath. Our text says on the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, it's the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather before Pilate. They have no difficulty doing business on the Sabbath if it meant cleaning up the mess they had created by crucifying the Son of God. Let's call Pilate, they said. Let's set up a meeting. Ha ha, but it's the Sabbath. We can't have a meeting. Why, you're required to rest. But perhaps it's an emergency. Perhaps this is like pulling your ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath. In that case, the emergency allows us to break the Sabbath. As I say, when when men are hypocrites, they'll resort to any excuse to do that which they forbid others from doing. You know, furthermore, Matthew tells us that the chief priest, that is Annas and Caiaphas, along with key Pharisees, gathered before Pilate. You'll remember that Matthew told us that when they delivered up Jesus to be crucified on the previous morning, that according to Matthew, they delivered him to Pilate the governor, and Matthew's chosen his words very carefully. Luke uses the same words. John describes it in greater detail, that which the other gospel writers merely assume. In John 18, 28, it says that they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled. But now Passover is over, and it seems, from Matthew's description, they've entered into the governor's headquarters, and they've defiled themselves on the Sabbath. (laughs) Even more striking is that the chief priests do this with the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. You know, the chief priests and the Pharisees, well, they're enemies. But not in the matter of Jesus. There, it seems, they have no differences at all. So they approach Pilate and show their concern that Jesus had said that he would rise on the third day. How did they know that? You know, just a short while before this, while the Sanhedrin met, false witnesses had been brought against Jesus. One man had testified that Jesus had said he was going to destroy the temple and in three days raise it again. John, in his gospel, tells us what Jesus had actually said. Destroy this temple. By that he meant his body, and in three days I will raise it again. Well, it turns out that the high priest never misunderstood Jesus after all. How evil these men were. You know, back at the trial, they were very happy to have false witnesses misrepresent what Jesus had said. But now that he died on the cross, and now that the sun had gone dark, and now that the veil in the temple had been torn, and now that the city had suffered from an earthquake, they seemed to have understood Jesus very well. Notice what they tell Pilate. The man's an imposter, they say. There's no way he's going to rise from the dead, they say. Those disciples of his, however, those brave men, you know, the the ones that ran to the hills the minute we arrested Jesus, those men, they're about to mount a challenge. They're going to steal the body of Jesus from the tomb of Joseph. Then they're going to tell everybody that Jesus rose from the dead. So they're trying to convince Pilate that there's a real and present danger of a social uprising. Matters need to be taken into hand. So what are these men asking for? Matthew tells us they asked that the tomb of Jesus should be made secure until the third day. That is, until the Sunday had passed. 
They're asking for a maximum degree of security around the tomb. Soldiers on full alert. After all, the disciples are about to mount a full military offensive against the tomb. You know, slanderers always are in danger of believing their own lies. You might remember that when Pilate was questioning Jesus, he had asked him if he were really the king of the Jews, and Jesus had responded and said his kingdom was not of this world, for if it had been of this world, his followers would have fought to prevent his arrest. But as it was, his kingdom was not of the world. Translation, Jesus had told Pilate in no uncertain terms that no one was going to fight to prevent the events that were unfolding from happening. But there was more. When Jesus was arrested, the chief priests had procured a military force to arrest Jesus. And when Peter had resisted by striking the servant of the high priest and cutting off his ear, Jesus had not only healed that servant, but he had demanded that Peter put away his sword. And then Jesus had rebuked Peter for taking up the sword in defense. And furthermore, Jesus had added that if he was interested in his own defense, he would have summoned 12 legions of angels to defend him. And then Jesus had said that his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion had to happen to fulfill scripture. You know, the chief priests had been there when Jesus had said that. Jesus had explicitly said that he had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The elders of Israel would not have been unaware that Jesus had taught these things. But here's the truth about slanderers. Slanderers are evil men. They're frequently duplicitous. They say one thing and they do another. They frequently lie. And men who say whatever needs to be said in order to maintain their power, these men can't get themselves to believe that somebody else might not be motivated as they are. And I remember once being involved in a man's life, and the man was, you know, leaving his wife for another woman. And I remember what he told me. He called me a hypocrite. He said, if you ever got the chance to have a sexual relationship with a woman other than your wife, and you could be assured that you wouldn't be caught, you'd do it just like I did. I said nothing in response. See, the problem with a man like that is that he can't imagine that there's someone in the world who's not motivated in exactly the same way that he is. And that was the problem with the elders of Israel, so lost in sin, so committed to their grip on power, they couldn't imagine that the disciples of Jesus wouldn't do exactly what they would have done if they were in their place. Matthew 27, 64 to 66. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You know, when Pilate says you have a guard, I mean, those words can be understood in two different ways. You know, one way of understanding is that Pilate is telling them, you already have the temple guard, use them. But that's clearly not what Pilate is saying. Rather, he's saying, you have a guard in the sense, I grant you a guard. You know, why is that important? Well, it's important because the guard would have been answerable to Pilate. They would have been trained Roman military men. Roman guards who lost their charge would be subject to death. And since the amount of time required to guard the tomb was not going to be a long time, essentially for a little more than two days, we have to imagine that enough men were already there on heightened alert, and they would have been ready for any social uprising. 
I would have to assume that this guard would have been a very large number of soldiers. They would have comprised, you know, perhaps several hundred men. So the Roman guard seals the tomb, and they also make the grounds on which the tomb is found to be secure. I assume that all points of entry onto the ground were secured. There would be no surprises. Anyone attempting to approach the tomb would be immediately apprehended. Anyone attempting to attack the tomb would be killed with overwhelming force. You know, I began by saying that if we fight with God, we'll play into God's hands. I say that because we might think on the one hand, you know, that the elders of Israel were being very shrewd here. But on the other hand, the presence of the Roman guard would be for all times a proof that no one stole the body of Jesus. The tomb was empty, but there had been an overwhelming force of a Roman guard. The guard that watched over the tomb of Jesus would forever be the evidence that Jesus truly had risen from the dead. The elders of Israel were providing evidence that the resurrection was real. Say it again. When we fight against God, God uses our rebellion to his advantage. We won't prevail. God's truth will prevail. As the body of Jesus was lying in the tomb on that Saturday, God was arranging through these unwitting evil men that there would forever be proof that Christ had risen bodily. These men were fighting against God. They would not prevail. God always wins. Thanks so much, John. You know, I would suspect that the Jewish leaders would have never thought that their actions would be used for God's glory. What does that say about how God's purposes always come to pass despite even our rebellion? Yeah, great question. So let me put it another way, um, and that is this. If you are rebelling against God and you are you know, resisting his purposes, know this, you are playing into God's hands. It will not go in your direction. It will always go in God's direction, and the cross tells you that. I mean, the greatest act of evil that was ever perpetrated against the glory of God is the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God. And yet this is the high point of our faith. This is our God. You can't win when you fight against him. You only will do harm to yourself and add greater glory to God. So what can I suggest? I can simply say, uh, do that one thing that you must do. Instead of fighting against God, get on your knees, humble yourself, and say, may it be your will, not mine, be done. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note, 
that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.